Good morning, everyone. Good morning. My Bible is open up to the book of Habakkuk. If you would just be finding in your Old Testament, right there tucked away near the end of the Old Testament, the tiny little book of Habakkuk, only three little chapters in this book. But I'm going to invite you there because that's where we're going to spend the duration of our study this morning in Habakkuk chapters 1, 2, and 3 as we get ready to spend these next few minutes together in the Word of God. It is great to have the opportunity this morning to stand before you and to share with you some things from Scripture that I always hope will be instructive and helpful and encouraging, and this morning, even some things that will be challenging. I do think that as we work together in the book of Habakkuk this morning, we are going to come across some things that are really going to challenge us, but some things that I believe are timely and some things that I believe are very needful. And so let's talk about Habakkuk chapter 1. Read with me, if you will, beginning in verse 1. In Habakkuk 1 and in verse 1, the Bible says, The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. And so the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous and justice goes forth perverted. This Tuesday, November the 3rd, is election day. And if all of the hyperbole is to be believed, this is going to be... The most important election ever. We're hearing that kind of jargon everywhere that we turn. And of course, it's not just the news media who are saying things like that. The candidates, both of the major party candidates have said that exact same kind of thing, that this is the most important election in history. And repeatedly, we are being told by both sides that the fate of the country, the state of the union hangs in the balance, that freedom and democracy are at stake in this election. And furthermore, both sides are absolutely convinced that the other party will be the downfall, will be the demise of this once great nation if their party is elected. This has been a polarizing election cycle, to say the very least. Now, you might like or dislike one of these candidates. You may have strong feelings one way or the other about these men. You might even choose not to vote for either of these people, and you might be making the right decision in any of those scenarios. And furthermore, you may be right that the candidate or the party that you are voting against has the potential, and I quote, to destroy this country. And it really doesn't matter which side, which end of the political spectrum that you find yourself on, there may be valid points to be made in any of those directions. My question to you this morning is this. When all of this is over, and I pray to God mercifully that it will be over sooner rather than later, when this election has concluded, If the outcome is not what you want it to be, will you be foul about that for weeks and weeks, maybe even for the next four years? Will it cause you to be so ill that nobody can even talk to you about it, especially anybody who happened to vote for the other guy in the election? And furthermore, will it ruin your life? 
Will it cause you to just be in a state of, of panic and dread and fear for the next four years? Maybe even cause you to think that this was the worst possible thing that ever could have happened? Will the outcome of this election maybe even cause you to become upset? So much so that you turn to God and you say, God, how could you allow that candidate or that political party to be the one to lead this nation? You know, if you analyze history properly, the people of God have only ever been ruled by a tiny few righteous people for a tiny few number of years. It's just never been the case with God's people that their rulers were predominantly righteous or that even the ones who were righteous, that that lasted for any significant period of time. And yet, despite all of that, God's plans have continued to go forward. God's purposes have continued to be accomplished. Even when a nation has found itself in perilous times with crooked leaders, the kind of thing that causes us to say, how could this happen? God's people have persisted in doing His will. Do you remember when Jesus said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render unto God the things that are God's? Can I suggest to you that that is not merely an explanation for why we owe taxes to the government who rules over us and provides services for us. It is that. But I believe that that statement also demonstrates conversely that there are some things that the government shouldn't be in charge of and that we shouldn't expect them to do. That, for example, the righteousness of people and the moral code by which we must live, that that is not the business of elected officials. That's the business of God. And that is the business of God's people to manage themselves according to His Word regardless of who the president is. We must obey God rather than man. It doesn't matter who wins this election. And I will remind you that those kinds of statements were made during the days of Claudius and Nero and some of the worst human leaders that this world has ever known. And if the people of God could do it in perilous times in the first century, if the people of God could do it under Nebuchadnezzar, or if they could do it under Sennacherib, or if they could do it under any of those other jokers, then we can do it today. When people submit their lives to God and live according to His rule of law, there are no problems with those people. All is well with those people. Even if they do find themselves under an oppressive government, even if evil is raging all around them, and in fact that evil is being flaunted and being encouraged and it's just happening willy-nilly, those people, God's people, they have a peace about them that is not of this world. And they have a hope within them that is not linked to any political campaign or candidate. And this morning, my task is to try to help all of us to get to that place. To get to a place where we have greater confidence and greater clarity about who it is that is really in control, even when maybe it seems like our nation is on the brink of being out of control. And the way that I want to do that this morning is by going back in time to when God was actually in charge of His people, when people answered directly to Him, I want to go back to the days of Habakkuk. 
Because just like many of us are asking, what has happened to our country? You know, why has God allowed evil to run so free? You know, say what you will about both of the major party candidates, but I don't think anybody is saying about either of those guys, oh my, paragon of virtue. Those guys are just morally where it's at. Nobody's saying that. No, what we're saying is, how has it come to this? How could God let things get so bad? Habakkuk was asking those exact same questions. And so as we sit anxiously on the precipice of an election that has many people concerned about the future of this nation, let's go back in time some 2,600, 2,700 years when the Israelites found their nation on the brink of peril. Habakkuk prophesied during the time of the divided kingdom. In fact, the ten northern tribes of the divided kingdom, they had already been taken off into Assyrian captivity. Their sin was so overwhelming for the 200 plus years that they stood in existence. They had zero righteous leaders. God put up with their sin as long as He possibly could until He gave them over to the Assyrians and the Assyrians all but wiped them out entirely. But the southern kingdom, the other tribes of Israel, they remained standing thanks in large part to the fact that they did have a few righteous leaders throughout their history. Not a lot, but they had a few righteous leaders. People who helped to turn people back to God and to keep the ship going in the direction that it needed to. But you know what? Even though the southern kingdom did have a few righteous leaders and they were able to stand for about another 120, 130 years after their counterparts had fallen, eventually, eventually they became just as wicked and just as idolatrous as the northern kingdom of Israel had been. In fact, that's what those first four verses of Habakkuk chapter 1 describe for us. Violence, injustice, greed, corruption, exploitation, bitter conflict. Hey, that that sounds familiar, doesn't it? That almost sounds like the world that we're living in right now. That sounds like 2020 America, doesn't it? But Habakkuk sees all of this. And he is deeply troubled by what is going on in his nation. But you know what? Instead of him just kind of bemoaning the sad state of affairs that he found himself in, instead of going on Facebook and just complaining to the World Wide Web about all the problems in the world, Habakkuk takes those concerns and he puts them in prayer and he brings them before the Lord. And that is exactly what we see going on here in the book of Habakkuk. There's a conversation that's taking place between God and Habakkuk about the state of affairs in the nation of Judah. And that is the beginning of this three chapters worth of conversation between God and Habakkuk. God, Habakkuk says, God, things are just terrible down here. There's just so much wickedness going on. Lord, when will you do something about this? To which God says... I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you asked that, Habakkuk, because I am going to do something about it. In fact, let me tell you what I'm going to do. Habakkuk 1 verse 5, Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if it was told you. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. 
Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like the sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and they take it. And they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. God says, yes, Habakkuk, I have seen what is going on in the land, and I have a plan. The people of Judah are going to be punished. And I'm going to use the Chaldeans. I'm going to use the Babylonians to administer that punishment. And let me tell you, they are the worst. They are. They are awful. I'm going to use these awful, terrible, horrifying people who are known for their violence, who are reputed for being disgustingly bad. I'm going to use them to clean up the mess that is Judah. Habakkuk asked an honest question. And God gave an honest answer. Unfortunately, it wasn't the answer that Habakkuk was hoping for. And so listen to Habakkuk's complaint. Verse 12, Habakkuk says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord. You have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Do you hear what Habakkuk's saying here? Habakkuk says, Okay, God, I understand what you're saying here. and I understand that we're really, really bad, but those Babylonians, they're so much worse than we are. They're way worse. How can you use the Babylonians? How do you take people who are terribly wicked and use them to punish less wicked people? Come on, Lord, surely you don't mean this. Let's let's, let's rethink this. Let's talk this over. Let's, Let's rethink the whole thing. Can I just make a side note right here? There'll be no additional charge for this. Anytime God reveals His will about something, And your response to that is, hey God, maybe we should rethink this whole thing. Maybe that's not what we want to do. Maybe we need to rethink the whole deal. You're always wrong. You are. You're always going to be wrong. It's never going to work out well when you try and tell God what to do. But that's what Habakkuk's trying to do. He doesn't like God's plan. And in fact, he actually kind of stubs up against God's plan. Chapter 2, verse 1, Habakkuk says, I will take my stand at my watch post. And I will station myself on the tower and I'll look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And so what Habakkuk says is, is Habakkuk says, God, I just just don't really like what you said there. And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to wait right here and I'm going to wait until you come back with a different answer, with with a different plan here. This is almost like a child who just kind of keeps coming back to mom and dad again and again until they finally get the answer that they want. Just going to kind of wear them down over the process of time until finally they change their mind. And that's what Habakkuk does here. 
Habakkuk says, I'm just going to stand right here with my arms crossed until God finally caves in and sees it my way, comes up with a different plan, preferably one that doesn't involve the suffering at the hands of these awful Babylonians. And you know what God's response is? God's response is, Habakkuk, I'm not changing my mind. I've already told you what I'm going to do, and that's what I'm going to do. In fact, what God says is He says, get yourself a pen and a paper and write this down because that's how certain this is happening. Chapter 2, verse 2, God says here, write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so that He may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by faith. God says, Habakkuk, I told you the first time, and I'm just going to tell you one more time, this is what we're doing. And I don't really know what this business is of you coming to me and consulting me, and somehow you're going to tell me what we're going to do. You asked. I answered, write it down. I don't really care that you don't like this plan. I don't care that you can't see the wisdom in it. It really doesn't make any difference what you think, Habakkuk. There's only one person in this conversation who is God, and it ain't you, buddy. We're doing this. This is going to happen. Now, it's right about here that I am very tempted to try and make all kinds of correlations and comparisons and connections between the nation of Judah back then and all of the current issues that are facing our nation today. But I think if I did that, I would end up burying the lead here. Because what I really need to focus our attention on is that statement that God makes in verse 4. What can you do when the outcome of an election when the direction of a country, at least from your perspective, is completely wrong. When in your estimation, this is not the way it ought to be, this is not the direction things ought to be going. And in fact, I am sure that there are going to be folks on either side of the aisle who are going to feel that exact way after this election is over. There are people, there are Christians, who maybe voted for the guy on the left. And they believe that if the guy on the left doesn't win, then eh, that's the death nail in the coffin. Just go ahead and just close it up. The USA is done with. And there are people on the right side of the aisle, Christians, who believe that if their guy doesn't win, that again, it'll just be the end. It'll be the end of the United States as we know it. Do you want to know what God says to those people? Do you want to know what God says to you and to me? To people who maybe are concerned, maybe even have some legitimate concerns about a bleak future for this nation. Do you know what God says to those people? What God says is, the righteous shall live by faith. That's what God says. God says, my people, the people who care about me, the people who care about my word, the people who care about what I think and are trying to live according to my way, those people, they will watch it all unfold on November the 3rd and in the days and the weeks that follow, and they will trust that I know what I'm doing. Even if the politicians and the rulers and the crooks don't understand it, my people will trust me. In fact, even if the evil that befalls us, 
ends up having a greater purpose in the mind of God than what we can see and perceive in our short lifetime? What we believe, those who are living by faith, we believe that God knows what He is doing. I do not pretend to know everything about the mind of God. I do not pretend to understand all the things that God is doing in our world as He rules in the kingdoms of men. I really don't have a clue as to what God's doing. But I can tell you this. I can tell you this. I want to be on His side. When the dust settles and all the smoke clears, I want Him to identify me as being a citizen of His kingdom. And it is for that very reason that honestly, I'm not all that overly concerned about who the president is going to be because I already know who the king is. And that's what you and I both need to know. And that certainly doesn't mean that you shouldn't vote or that you shouldn't be involved in the political processes or that you shouldn't have a rooting interest in who's going to win this election. I think all of that is well and all of that is good. But I'll tell you this, Christian. I don't know about you, but I've decided this for me. I'm going to live by faith no matter who the next president is. It frankly doesn't matter. It doesn't change anything about what I'm going to do. I'm going to do what's right, even if that means suffering and even being persecuted for my faith. To suffer for doing right as a Christian, that is the highest honor afforded to temporal life. To suffer like Jesus who suffered and bled and died for me to redeem us from our sins. That is the greatest thing that any of us could ever do. Which means if God is planning something so that our country falls as a lesson for all of human history for the ages of the ages to see this is what happens to a nation of people who becomes too fat and too wealthy and too proud. If that is what God is doing, then so be it. He is God. If God is using us and changing things in order to demonstrate that righteousness exalts a nation, righteousness is a path that people ought to pursue, and in fact that He will bless righteousness, then so be it. He is God. He will do what He wishes. I just know. I do. I just know that He is right. I know this about God. I know that He has never lied to anyone. Ever. I know that His finances are crystal clear and transparent. I know that He has never been involved in a scandal. I know that He has always told the truth. I know that He has always given far more than He's ever received. I know that He has helped everybody, whether they loved Him or whether they didn't. I know that He has done everything that has ever been expected of Him and so much more. And because of that, He has earned my trust. I will live by faith. And yes, that statement in Habakkuk 2 verse 4, that does mean that I'm going to live with a positive outlook, I'm going to live optimistically, that you know what, things are going to be okay. But even more than that, the righteous shall live by faith. That means that I am going to submit to His will regardless of where it takes me. I would have you notice though, that even though God is allowing some things to take place, He is still taking note of who is doing wrong. He still pronounces woe to those who do not repent. 
Like for example, in verses 6 through 20, you see all of that enunciated. Just grab a little bit of that. In Habakkuk chapter 2, look first of all in verse 6. Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Drop down to verse 15. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk so that he can gaze at their nakedness. Verse 19. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to a lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. God makes it very clear that even though He is using those extremely wicked Babylonians to punish those slightly less wicked people of Judah, God says, I'm not missing a trick. It's not that I'm ignorant of what's going on down there. I see all of the wickedness. I see all of the sin that's taking place. I see all of that with perfect clarity that no human can see because not only can God see the behavior... God is able to see the heart. And He will judge everyone, everyone by His righteous standard. Which is why the just, they better live by faith. They just better. They better not fall in line like the rest of these unrepentant folks. They better live by their faith. And then God concludes His speech to Habakkuk with a very gentle but firm reminder in verse 20. God says this, He says, But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. That is the nicest way that anybody has ever told anybody to shut up. That's what's being said there. Habakkuk, be quiet. I'm in control. I'm the one who's pulling all the strings here. And what Habakkuk cannot see is that God is the one who pulled Nebuchadnezzar up by his bootstraps and placed him in that position of authority over the Babylonians. He's the one who put them in that position of power and wealth that enabled Nebuchadnezzar to end up doing and accomplishing God's purposes. And if at the end of all of that, if Nebuchadnezzar still didn't want to serve God, then he would disappear just like Pharaoh before him and just like the Caesar after him. All of those presidents and kings and prime ministers throughout history, they are all but pawns in the hand of the one who rules in the kingdoms of men. Let all the earth keep silent before Him because God knows what He's doing. Now it is at this point that Habakkuk, he has a major turnaround. It's like a 180 degree shift. Chapter 3 really reads like a prayer, but in actuality it's, it's more like a song. If you drop down to verse 19, it actually says, To the choir master. But the key here is that Habakkuk, he is now accepting what he once was very much not accepting. He is upset, accepting of God's plan to humble his people. Notice the beginning of that prayer, chapter 3 and in verse 2. Habakkuk says, O Lord... I have heard the report of you and of your work, O Lord, and I do fear. If you go back and actually read chapter 2, verses 6 through 20, if reading some of that, those woes that God pronounces, if reading some of that doesn't cause you to quake and shake a little bit in your boots, then, then you're probably not reading that right. 
Habakkuk says, I've heard about what you've done, Lord, and I do fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. Do it, Lord. What you've done in the past, have you poured your wrath out in the past? Pour it out again. In the midst of the years, make it known, but in wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk says, Lord, as you are working your plan, as you are bringing judgment upon this nation, as you are accomplishing the purposes that only you have the foresight to see and to understand, he says, Lord, please remember your mercy because that's what I'm going to remember. In fact, in verses 3 down through about verse 15, Habakkuk just kind of goes through history and recites all kinds of events where God's wrath was poured out. And in each of those instances, not only was it terrifying... But each time what it did is it resulted in the blessing of God's people. That God's mercy was evident even as He was expressing His wrath. Now, brothers and sisters, read your Bible very carefully and take note. In all of the times that God has blessed His people, it was not always obvious to those people at the time that He was blessing them. And sometimes those blessings were actually preceded by hundreds upon hundreds of years of suffering. And that was because the plan of God was much too big to be contained to the lifetime of one generation of people. Which means that for me, it is the apex of arrogance to think that everything happens in our day and time. That God is just most concerned with what's going on in this generation right now at this point in history. You hear so much, I'm hearing so much right now, of all this end times talk. People are just really ratcheting up the end times sort of talk. People are talking about how, oh, this sign here, it's happening in our country. Or this candidate over here, he fits the description to a T of the Antichrist. Or these verses over here in Revelation, oh man, that just fits the United States of America to a T. That is so arrogant and so conceited that God waited all of this time for us to be here. Who are we? Who are we in the big scheme of things? Who is America? It is foolish for us to assume that the USA figures large in the plans of God for anything more than a few generations. He raises nations up and He tears nations down like that. It is nothing for Him. And I realize that as I'm saying these sorts of things that it would be very easy for somebody to say, you just sound like you're just anti-American. You just don't care about this country and you're not patriotic at all. Listen to me. I am not anti-American. And I am not ungrateful and not unaware of the great privileges that being born and growing up and living in this great country right now, that it affords to me. I love this country. I believe this country is the greatest shot that the world has ever had to have freedom and the gospel running hand in hand at the same time. I am so thankful for that. I am thankful to the Lord for that. But you know what? If God has to make people suffer in order to get them serious about their faith, Do you think God will do that? If it takes stripping from us some of the comforts and some of the freedoms that we enjoy that maybe even we take for granted 
so that we and others will turn to Him and see our need for Him and see that life is about a whole lot more than making money and having fun? Do you think God will do that? You better bet your bottom dollar God will do that. And while we might see that as being something that is painful, something that is harsh, something that doesn't feel good in the moment, we must not despise the chastening of the Lord. Because what that actually is, is that is the mercies of God causing us and reaching down to us and asking us to pay attention, to get it turned around, to love Him more fervently, and for that we should praise Him. In fact, that is ultimately the conclusion that Habakkuk arrives at. In verse 16 of chapter 3, Habakkuk says, Lord, I'm, uh, I, I'm accepting of what's going to happen, but, but I am still a little bit fearful. I am. I'm fearful for what the future holds. It, sounds, it just sounds terrible and I'm, I'm still a little worked up about that. And you know what? I, I think that's natural. And in fact, I think we can relate to that, can't we? That Yeah, I don't know what's going to happen after next week. And there are some aspects of that that are a little bit frightening and a little bit scary. But notice what Habakkuk says as he concludes this book. In Habakkuk 3 and in verse 17, Habakkuk says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, though the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, though the flocks be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Habakkuk says that whatever the future holds in this temporary world, I'm going to take joy in the Lord. I'm going to rejoice in the God who saves me. And brothers and sisters, I'm saying to you this morning that whatever the future holds, whatever the outcome of this election and whatever that ends up meaning for our nation, we need to find that exact same joy that Habakkuk found. And I'm going to say to you right now that if your joy depends upon Joe Biden or Donald Trump, then Christian, you need to do some soul searching. Because our joy does not rest in political parties. Our joy does not rest in flawed and fallible men. Our joy rests in Jesus the Christ who loves us and who has saved us from sin. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor my candidate be chosen on election day, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. When this is all said and done after next week, can you say that? Will you be able to say those same things? You know... We may very well be on the cusp, on the brink of some perilous times here in this nation. I pray that we are not, but if we are, are you prepared for that? Are you ready to deal with that in a right and God-honoring way? Are you part of a holy nation? Are you part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken whose foundations are in heaven itself.
The only way to have joy and to have peace and to have hope in troublesome times is for the righteous to live by faith as we humbly serve the Lord of all lords and the King of all kings. Let's pray about that. Would you pray with me? Our dear gracious God, our Father in heaven, Father, we come before you this morning confessing to you that we do have concerns and we do even have some fears and we have some anxieties about what is to come for our nation. Father, we don't understand, and we confess this as well, that we don't always understand what's going on and what you might be doing behind the scenes and how your plans are unfolding. But Father, what we ask this morning is that you would help us to have more faith and more trust in you. That you know what you're doing. Help us, Father, that we might lean more fully upon you and upon your word. And we pray, Father, that you would help us that we would live by faith regardless of what's going on around us. Father, we do ask your blessings upon us as a nation and as a country. We pray that you would help us, that you would help our leaders. We pray that we might be able to live a peaceful and godly life here upon this earth so that we might continue to serve you and to bring glory to your name. But Father, even if that is not your will, that we would enjoy peace and we would enjoy freedom, help us, Father, that we would have the courage to keep on serving you nonetheless. We thank you so much for Jesus. We're thankful that He is our perfect leader, that He is our perfect King, that He will never fail us. And we're thankful for what He did for us on the cross in securing for us an eternal place in Your kingdom. We praise You for that and we praise Jesus. And it is in His holy name that we offer this prayer. And Amen.